welcome to another episode of espionage and i have a very special guest with us today uh sudarshan garg is also known as the ram guha of soviet history and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have him on this episode uh, to discuss afghanistan uh, we'll be looking at parallels between uh, the situation that amrullah saleh and uh, ahmed masood find themselves in today uh, with uh masood's father uh, ahmed shah masood in the 1980s thank you shanak uh, i think it's a big honor being on your podcast i think you uh, i love what you're doing it's a very niche space that you that you dabble in that you are you know you bring your expertise to and i think a lot of it is tied into kgb operations and i think uh, kgb operations or lack of it uh, for better for a better word played a big role in the disasters uh, of operations punjishi is one to whatever 10 12 and i think it's 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 going to be interesting to talk about those and uh, yeah thank you thank you once again for your kind invitation fantastic man thanks thanks so much for joining in so let's start with the afghan situation right now uh, let me take a minute or two to summarize what we know of uh, the situation in afghanistan broadly and specifically the panjshir valley uh, uh, so after uh, a fair bit of uh, bloody combat uh, it so happens that the taliban have uh, taken control of the valley proper uh, they've taken the towns and villages in the valley and they've uh, hoisted their white flag uh, which is not surprising if you consider the history of uh, the panjshir resistance but it is what it is uh, there are also reports that uh, saleh and masood are out of afghanistan uh, saleh is rumored to be in tajikistan in dushanbe and uh, ahmed masood uh, is rumored to be in france uh, i would expect that uh, both these guys are trying to drum up support for the panjshir resistance abroad uh, weapons money what have you but uh, it remains to be seen exactly how they proceed from here as far as uh, afghanistan at a broader level is concerned the taliban are in control but uh, questions remain about which taliban is in control you have the southern taliban which is basically composed of the durrani tribes uh, from kandahar and thereabouts and you have the eastern taliban which is basically the haqqanis or uh, the ghilzais and uh, if you look at uh, the way the deputy prime minister of the taliban government uh, mullah bardar had to rush to kandahar uh, to uh, exchange views or take advice from their spiritual leader uh, mullah hibatullah akhunzada uh, there uh, in the on the backdrop of uh, rumors about uh, a fight between the haqqanis and mullah bardar and their respective camps in kabul uh it, it's pretty obvious that there's a power struggle going on with the isi throwing the weight uh, behind the haqqanis and uh the southern taliban don't look too happy about that uh, a, to add to this chaotic mix you have uh, iskp or uh, isisk who are apparently bombing the hell out of uh, taliban checkpoints in jalalabad and uh, it, it, it's a perfect uh, tinderbox Uh, which can erupt uh, there's no saying that it will they might just come to an agreement where uh, power is shared equitably and uh, everyone goes home happy but that's very unlikely isn't it no so so i think that's a that's spot on i think of course uh, you know i think there could be an entirely uh, 
uh, a full podcast dedicated to the factional struggles of the Taliban. It's quite disappointing, though, that uh, a lot of the media, especially in, and I'm going to say Indian media primarily because that's what I consume, uh, haven't uh, even gotten the basics here. Right to them, they see the Taliban as a monolithic entity. Uh, it never was uh, a monolithic entity. For example, even back in '96, '97. Uh, at the height of, say, the you know, ISI-sponsored uh, rise of the Taliban, you might want to call it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you'll be covering that in a little bit more detail. But even then, you had factions within factions. So you had, but but the broad aspect uh, of the Talibani factions is is always been the same. Uh, you know, if you look at Mullah Baradar and his his status, his status is that they want an independent, uh, say, Afghanistan, whose foreign policy is not doubtful or tied or curtailed into any of the other entities, including which is which is Pakistan. Right. And then you have the Pakistan-sponsored uh, elements now, which in this case, uh, as of today, are the, are the, you know, Haqqani faction. Now, what they want is they are funded by, uh, you know, uh, the Pakistanis. And so for them, aligning with Pakistan is vital. Uh, and that is yeah. where the, uh, the crux of the issue has always been. Uh, in fact, uh, we, you know, when when uh, when Mullah Omar was still in charge, they used to say that uh, you know the money used to come from Allah, and mm-hmm. Allah was spelled Z, you know, Z-I-A, Z-I-A. You know, <laughs> it, it, it essentially flew from Pakistan. The money came from Pakistan. So there's been a lot of factional difficulties, and I agree with you. Uh, but is it going to be an easy war, long war? You know, we can't predict. I mean, it, it, time will only tell. But yeah, spot on analysis. Uh, one major difference between uh, the early, uh, so not the early the 1990s and this time around is uh, the Taliban have been uh, far more uh, sensible in terms of their approach towards uh, taking territory. Uh, this time around, uh, they did not start from Kandahar. They started from the northern areas. If I'm not mistaken, Kunduz was one of the first cities to fall. Uh, and uh, in doing that, what they, what they achieved was uh, preventing the Panjshiris from uh, securing a land bridge to Tajikistan, which has been... Uh, their uh, main sponsor uh, in the 90s and uh, early 2000s uh, for Ahmed Shah Massoud. So uh, resupply is a major challenge for the Panjshiris. Obviously, uh, we saw a few images of Tajik choppers in the Panjshir Valley at the beginning of combat operations, uh, apparently carrying weapons and ammunition, but uh, nothing since then. So uh, they've been far more sensible this time. Uh, I would say they've learned from the mistakes of the 90s where, uh, you know, they took a linear approach and they ended up uh, in a major slogging match. This time around, uh, they've, they've adopted maneuver and they've very effectively isolated the Panjshiris. Uh, slight difference here, and I think mm-hmm. you sort of touched on that uh, rightly. It's it's less to do with Taliban's strategic brilliance and more to do with the you know with with the acts of geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, back during the civil war, I know it sounds very funny, uh, but the Russians were one of the most uh, you know were one of the leading supporters. When I say supporters, you know Russians funneled most of the arms and and money that the Northern Alliance used to fight the Taliban. And if you look at the if you look at the geography of Panjshir or even Afghanistan, the Panjshir Valley does not uh, you know directly have any linkages to the outside world per se. So mm-hmm. the you know the alliance had to keep you know routes open in from Tajikistan, which uh, you know which was used by the Soviets or rather the Russians uh, right. to to funnel arms and and money. 
But this time, they don't have that advantage. Uh, we still don't know which way the Russian wind is going to play. Uh, at least there's not too much of concrete information. Or they might just let, uh, you, know, sl- you know, let things lie. Or they might go with the Chinese friends, as I might call it. Uh, so, yeah, right now, the Alliance are in a, Alliance Part 2 are in a far worse situation in terms of resupply. And uh, that's a big that's a big, big factor because the the reason the you know the Northern Alliance Part One could absorb all those attacks was because one of the tactics was to use these routes, uh, or and back then even Pakistan, okay, to a certain extent did allow them some support, uh, mm-hmm. though they did uh, favor entirely the Hezb A Islamis, uh, you know, led by Gul, you know Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Okay. Uh, but yeah, geography is a big challenge uh, for the Northern Alliance too, and I think. Uh, if that's not fixed, if you know resupply is not fixed, and they don't get their you know uh, men, their wounded men out, and they don't get fresh supplies in, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a huge challenge for them to overcome. Right. So uh, excellent that you brought up uh, Hekmatyar because uh, I wanted to uh, segue into the 1980s, uh, starting with the Peshawar Seven, and focus on Hekmatyar and Masood's dynamic before the rise of the Taliban. Uh, so the Peshawar Seven was a, a, a loose grouping of seven uh, Mujahideen groups. Uh, one of them was, of course, Ahmad Shah Masood, uh, based in Panjshir. Uh, another one was uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar of the Hezbe Islami, which you mentioned. Uh, this guy was based around uh, Jalalabad, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, slightly primarily. Southward. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was one. He, he's still alive, by the way. Very surprising, but uh, the guy just uh, just won't die. Uh, Hekmatyar and his men were some of the most brutal uh, of the lot. Uh, if you consider all the Mujahideen, uh, this guy was absolutely bloodthirsty. And uh, he had the full support of the ISI throughout the 80s, especially the latter half, as uh, the ISI started realizing that uh, the southern... Pashtuns, the Durrani, uh, Durranis among the uh, the the Mujahideen weren't really interested in all-out war. They were interested in fighting and coming to an accommodation, a political accommodation with uh, the the Soviets initially and then Najibullah. But uh, this guy, this guy was absolutely, you know, I, I I want to kill the Soviets. I want to kill Najibullah. I want to rule Afghanistan by myself. And in fact. Uh, on a number of occasions, he also ambushed uh, his own fellow Mujahideen groups. Uh, there was an occasion when he ambushed uh, Masood's uh, forces and ended up uh, killing about 70 or 80 of his men, including a number of his senior officers. Uh, that was a huge, huge loss to Masood. And uh, since then, their rivalry became really intense. So let's let's start with uh, the Peshawar 7. And uh, would you mind just, you know, uh, spilling your thoughts about them? And, yeah, uh, I would, I would in fact, go further back because I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the rise of uh, Islamic, uh, you know, fundamentalism and jihad in uh, Afghanistan goes back uh, before the Soviet invasion. In fact, the Soviet invasion was just uh, the cap, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at it, uh, truly, even if you look at Masood's career, for example, it starts way back in the in the early 70s uh, against the right. government of, you know, Daoud. Uh, yeah. That's when okay, and I and I sympathize with Daud, the Daud regime here, 
I know they were communists and, you know, they, they got a bad rep in the world, in the global press and all of that back then. Uh, but what Dowd was trying, and I think it's a Herculean task, what he was trying to do was essentially, you know, modernize Afghanistan. Right. He, he, you know, basically the, the reason for so much of, you know, ground level resistance uh, was that he did not go along with the existing, say, social hierarchies and the and the power structures? He wanted to upend the whole things. Uh, so basically, he he raided you know village level councils. He arrested mullahs, powerful mullahs. Uh, you know, he mandated secular education. Now, in if you look at it in principle, that's actually what the Karzai government or whatever the U.S. led you know entity tried to do. That's what they should have been aiming for. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's what Dow did. Uh, but he didn't have even one tenth the the power or the you know the you know the force that that uh, the Karzai government could muster, uh, of course, on behalf of the Americans. True, true. But, so it goes uh, back then. So, that's true. To, to add to that, uh, Dow also had uh, an absolute uh, bastard on the eastern side of the Grand Line in uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was uh, hell bent on creating chaos in Afghanistan because he wanted. The the idea of a greater Pashtunistan to kind of disappear in the in that chaos. If if Afghanistan was completely chaotic and off balance, then they wouldn't have time to you know start thinking about a greater Pashtunistan because there are more Pashtuns living on the eastern side of the Durand line uh, in Pakistan than there are Pashtuns in Afghanistan. And uh, one of the greatest fears of the Pakistani establishment is. This idea taking hold among their own population of Pashtuns that, you know, our brothers on the other side of the line, we, we belong together in one one single nation. That would be absolutely brutal for the Pakistanis. So uh, Zia was fishing in troubled waters. Uh, sorry, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was fishing in troubled waters. Zia had absolutely no clue about it when he was chief of army staff uh, reporting to Bhutto. Bhutto had, in fact, uh, asked him at... Uh, a symposium or a program, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about uh, the situation on our western border? And Zia, Zia said, you know, I, I something to the effect of I am a simple man. I really don't know much about politics and I don't have an opinion about Afghanistan. So it was Bhutto who started the trouble. Uh, Daud had to react to it. He didn't have the resources of the Karzai government or the United States, obviously. So you're right. Uh, he was in, in in a tough situation, and uh, I, I sympathize with the guy a bit as well. True, and again, he had to play his own, you know, uh, you know, tribal cards because he was seen as a. Okay, it's very weird, but he was seen as both a communist hand as well as a as a Pashtun hand. So basically, mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, again, uh, you know, for the lay reader. Uh, you have the Pashtuns and then you have the others. You have the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and you have the you have a Shia central, you know, majority. OK, not majority. Sorry. A Shia minority of about a million who are primarily you know, dominant in the central highlands. So it's like a Russian Matyoroshka doll. You know, you have layers within layers. So uh, Daud's regime was doomed from the start. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is this is when the uh, let's say the. Uh, the Masoods and the Unices and the Hekmatyas, they started, you know, cutting their teeth. A lot of them were military officers. A lot of them had secular education. For example, Masood apparently uh, taught his class in, you know, in a, in a French, uh, you know, a system, a French school system. Uh, he was supposed to be an exceptional student. Uh, but uh, essentially, these guys sort of, uh, you know, like, they, they set up their resistance cells. They started arming. And of course, this was all 0.303 infield rifle bullets. I mean, they didn't have yes. any high-tech weaponry. So 
But that's when the real resistance started. That's where the principles of the resistance started. And that's where they started learning each other's, you know, that's what they started learning how to do what to do. The initial insurgencies, though, failed, uh, though Daoud had ran a very primitive uh, Afghan military back then. I mean, the, the, the insurgents were even more primitive. So mm-hmm. the likes of, you know, Rabani had to, you know, run off into exile. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Masood did went into exile or he just disappeared into his uh, Panjshiri mountains like Shivaji in the Western Ghats. But mm-hmm. but they all scattered, right? The galvanizing event, though, was the Soviet invasion because that is when uh, the CIA decided, you know, Operation Cyclone uh, it came into being. Uh, uh, right. Operation Cyclone. Do you want to take Operation Cyclone or should I just uh, lay the groundwork for Operation Cyclone? Because that is going to determine, uh, you know, oh, how right. Afghans... Okay, right. No, so Operation Cyclone was very simple. The Soviets uh, had crushed, uh, you know, American dreams in, in Vietnam uh, mm-hmm. by running an, you know, a proxy war, by running an insurgency and by supporting it from a distance. And uh, similarly, now the US had a way in. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they figured that, listen, there's a there's an opportunity for us to, you know, really hurt the Soviets. And mind you, in the 80s, 82s, 83s, uh, even the best of CIA analysis and, and, you know, the best of the American intelligence network didn't know that the Soviet economy was a sham, that it was that it was breaking down. They, I mean, as far as the U.S. were concerned, the Soviets were just as powerful as them. And basically, here was a chance to give them, you know, return the favor of Vietnam and give them a bloody nose. And uh, they, the deal was very simple. Again, like I said, Operation Cyclone alone is is scope for another whole part, podcast in itself. Uh, but the deal was very simple. Uh, the CIA would fund a certain X amount of money, which I think by mid-83, by, by 83, 84, it was about a billion dollars uh, in right. cash uh, and arms. Uh, the GID, which is the Mukbarat, the Saudi Arabian intelligence, uh, yes. They got into the act. Now, they were very new at that time. I mean, they still aren't a great, uh, you know, intelligence agency. They, they, don't, they lack the capabilities of a Mossad or even a ISI. Uh, but they have money. And, and, so, and they realize that. So, so as far said, as, you know, uh, hang yeah, on, hang on. Uh, there's an interesting anecdote about the GID. Uh, it was headed by uh, Prince Turki Al-Faisal at that point of time. And... Uh, he he went and met uh, some people in the CIA in Washington and they were just uh, casually chatting at that point of time. And he's like, look, we don't know how to do operations, okay, but we know how to cut checks and that's what we're going to do. So uh, they were very clear about uh, their abilities and what they were out to do. They basically told the CIA, uh, let's do this. We'll match you dollar for dollar. You're putting in a billion dollars a year. We'll put in a billion dollars a year. And this was, mind you, not including the private charity that Saudi citizens were doing. And that charitable money was flowing into uh, the jihad in Afghanistan again uh, through various religious organizations, as well as uh, the the religious uh, order in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, power resides in two places. Uh, it resides with the royal family and it also resides with the uh, the 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 mullahs and uh, those guys have a lot of money as well uh, it, it's one of the costs that the royal family has to bear uh, in order to maintain uh, stability in the kingdom and uh, the the religious order was also pouring in a ton of money into madrasas all through the western uh, part of pakistan where uh, afghan refugees would pour in uh, they would learn about islam they would also learn about uh, guerrilla warfare and then they 
they'd be uh, ready soldiers for the Peshawar 7th. Right. That's that's my aside. You go ahead, please. Continue. Right. No, you spot on. Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, and again, don't quote me on these numbers because it's been a while since I, uh, you know, read this particular subject. But if I'm not mistaken, uh, the number of Wahhabi funded, I mean, let's not forget one thing, the ideology, Wahhabi ideology. The Wahhabi funded ideology, madrasas, uh, went from less than, you know, less than a thousand uh, in, in this part of Pakistan and borderline Afghanistan in the mid 40s to 50s. It, it hit a peak of around, you know, 15 to 20,000 by we're talking about the early 90s. So basically during the 60s and 70s, you saw you saw an explosion, you know, pun unintended, uh, explosion of these madrasas uh, where uh, students were being radicalized and uh, ready for war. Uh, and aside from Turkey's uh, cutting checks comment, I think there is one more thing that they did contribute in massive numbers. Uh, it is volunteers to the mm-hmm. to the cause. It either either direct Arab volunteers. Uh, of course, we have our dear Mr. Osama uh, <laughs> as a as a classic example. Uh, you have that, or you have the Pakistani volunteers. Now, the Pakistani volunteers, I you know, sub, I say that the Saudis contributed because the Pakistani volunteers were there because of the radicalization in the madrasas. And the madrasas were almost entirely a Saudi project. So, yeah, so this was bro- broadly it. And I think one important point to note for the future episode or maybe a couple of episodes, as we don't know how that's going to pan out, is that the ISI demanded complete control over financing of this money. So yes. essentially what was happening was in the mid-80s, the ISI was getting about, you know, two to three billion dollars of, of, of pretty much cold, hard, black currency. Uh, it was getting arms and equipment. All of it was flowing via Karachi. That was anyway, that was the only option. I mean, you couldn't route it through Iran, of course, nor could yeah. you route it through the Soviet Union. It's not like the Soviets are going to say, yeah, you know what, right, send the arms through. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so all the all the arms flowed, you know, went through Karachi. All the money was routed through Islamabad. So what this meant was the Pakistanis essentially dictated which Mujahideen organization survived. So if yeah. they didn't like you know, say Huck, for example, the Lion of Kabul, uh, then, well, he didn't get his money, he didn't get his arms, he didn't get his, you know, volunteers. Same with Masood. And, and we'll get into that now, I guess, but uh, Masood was hated by the Pakistani establishment. Yes. Uh, so basically, he was starved of all equipment. So, for example, uh, he got a total of five Stinger missiles, you know, the, you know launchers, eight. or eight, sorry, eight, eight. yeah, eight. Eight, while, you know, the Hekmatyars and the others got, you know, hundreds. That's the kind of disparity we're talking about. So, so, so there, there's another. Let me throw in another anecdote over there. Uh, the CIA's uh, head of station in Islamabad uh, in the late 80s or early, sorry, in the 90s, uh, the Soviets had withdrawn, and this guy was, uh, you know, keen on uh, getting some information out of Afghanistan. Because remember, as soon as the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, the the U.S. establishment absolutely lost interest in that country. Uh, six months after the Soviet withdrawal, the CIA didn't even have any directives about uh, collecting intelligence in Afghanistan. So they let their, uh, their all their sources in Afghanistan wither away and uh, uh, they were basically blind to what was going on in there. This guy, uh, of his own initiative, decided that's that's not acceptable. So he flew to Kabul. Okay, he first made contact with Masood's brother in Peshawar, uh, who was in radio contact with Masood in Panshir and Kabul. Uh, this guy says, "Look, I want to meet you." So Masood says, "Okay, fly down." 
this guy hopped onto a plane landed in kabul he was picked up by the panjshiris and driven to panjshir valley which is about 150 kilometers uh, north east of uh, kabul there he meets masood and he's like look we have old relations etc etc we've supplied you arms and ammunition and i want to get that relationship going again and masood's like okay uh, what do you want to do about it so this guy says look i don't have much money because i don't have a directive from washington but yeah. what i can do is you know we gave you so many stingers and now we are buying them back so if you get give me your stingers then i can pay you for that plus if you get stingers from other mujahideen as well uh, i'll give you a commission for returning them to us and masood's like okay how many stingers do you think you gave me and this guy said you know we gave thousands of stingers so i'm guessing you must have 100 uh, a few hundred at least and masood says boss we received eight stingers i'm surprised even guy, got eight i mean knowing the isi yeah. they would have given him some rigged or bug non working dabbas because they tested uh, yeah exactly or or like you know one of those uh, you know road runner and coyote uh, strips <laughs> maybe it exploded in the face of the bloody mujahideen who launched the launcher we don't know but anyways yeah but so suffice it to say the the isi hated you know the, uh, masood and the reason for that is because again like the mulla baradar faction i okay that name is very funny i you know whenever i say that this is a tamil uh, comedian called vadivelu uh, uh, mm-hmm. who used to pronounce brother as birader okay so it's, <laughs> it's, it might not make sense to you guys but so whenever i say mulla birader i mean the only person i can think of is vadivelu which is not the real linkage you want but anyways uh, like you know like mulla for example masood and you know rabani his nominal boss but you know anyway masood held all the power behind the throne Right. they wanted a pakistan i mean afghanistan that was uh, for lack of a better word not as fundamentalist as the the say the haqqani uh, version or the mullah omar version of the taliban what they wanted or even the hekmatyar uh, mm-hmm. they wanted an afghanistan that basically you know dealt with the soviets or the russians the indians pakistan iranis and indians uh that in suit pakistan they they wanted a client state which is i think why the hatred stemmed from uh because masood had been pushing for this along with other members including haq and uh, you know rabani uh from the mid 80s so i guess pakistan really feared that if he gained the upper hand then uh, you know there could be potential there could be another rival like you said a pashtunistan based okay not pashtunistan but there could be a rival in the western front also along with the eastern front And, of course being india and you have to remember masood was a tactical genius uh, he didn't have the resources that some of the other mujahideen groups commanded but the guy held his own against the soviets uh, for uh, years on end and uh, his 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 ability to move his men and you know appear in surprising places for conducting raids was legendary so that i i think that also kind of played into the isis fears about him and uh, led to them starving him of resources and funds right that is in fact that's a good segue into into soviet operations in in uh, in the panjshir and in in afghanistan in general uh, i i i would also say that yes he was very good okay i uh, i really love him as a reader in the sense i like reading about him he was inspirational mm-hmm. he was not uh, you know a jihadi madman like hekmatyar for example who decided to bomb kabul and kill civilians Uh, but at the same time you must keep in mind he was also like the wormart okay one thing i'm going to be doing throughout this uh, next whatever half an hour 45 minutes is i'll try and bring historical parallels because i like doing that 
Uh, like the Wehrmacht generals, you know, post World War II, he also was very conscious about his image. So we need to keep that in mind because he knew how to play the Western media like a fiddle. And he did that. If you read interviews or watch, you know, TV news uh, show clippings, I mean, he basically he 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 knew what to give the mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know the Western media. Uh, there's another leader like that, uh, uh, by the way. Uh, maybe he was older, so maybe you know Masood picked up tips from him. You don't know. Uh, there was another Hizbe Islami group. Now, don't get confused with the you know Hekmatia you know faction. This was run by Abdul Yunus. Now that man also was very similar. I mean, he knew how to play to the media. He knew how to sell his strengths and and sort of raise money and resources and all of that. And, and remember, this was when Islamic fundamentalism was not seen as a threat, uh, more so as it was seen as a as a potent force, you know, in alliance with the West to defeat the evil forces of communism or whatever was the rhetoric. Right. Uh, right. This was when Rambo was happening, mind you. I mean, can you imagine a Rambo in, in today's political climate? Yeah. This just won't happen. Uh, this Rambo was, this was when uh, groups of Mujahideen were visiting the White House and getting photographs clicked with Reagan. Exactly. But, but hold on. But at no point did Reagan say that the Taliban or the Mujahideen were founding fathers. No, Mr. Imran Khan, that's full of shit. I mean, sorry. He never said that. I mean, they used the Mujahideen, yes, uh, but they never found them to be uh, founding fathers or whatever bullshit. Uh, so, do you, so let's get started. I think, uh, do you want to give a brief on the Soviet invasion of uh, Afghanistan to set the tone? Just to, just to get, get the highlights and then we can get into the actual on-ground tactics. Hey, you're the Ram Goa of Soviet history, man. You go ahead. Okay, that's next time you call. Okay, I'm not <laughs> sure if Ram Guha is bad or, or I should be happy you're not calling me the Irfan Habib or Dian Ja of, of Afghan history. I mean, that comes next. I, yeah, okay, then, then I'm just going to disconnect. Anyway, <laughs> so, so broadly speaking, guys, this is what happened, right? So we spoke about the Daud regime. Now, even before that, the king um, sort of fell into the Soviet sphere of influence very broadly. I'm not going to get into the full history That's, that starts in the mid-40s. Uh, and, and the communists of uh, you know, Afghanistan started penetrating all institutions. And then you ultimately got the Daoud regime. The Daoud regime tried to institutionalize and to modernize Afghanistan. But there was a huge dose of communization uh, as well. I don't know how to say that. Uh, and this was seen as a threat first by Afghan uh, leaders, uh, all the leaders that we mentioned so far, uh, they formed resistance units and then some of the resistance was, was crushed pretty badly. Like I said, they were amateur art, uh, you know, uh, defense attempts. We'll cover that when we come to, say, the first Panjshir, uh, you know, operation. Uh, then what happened is then the, but then there was a lot of instability and the insurgents started gaining the upper hand because in Pakistan, like, uh, you know, Seanak said, decided it didn't want a stable Afghanistan on its border. It started fomenting trouble. There was a huge amount of instability. There was a coup. Then the Soviets decided to invade. The so and uh, there was no grand plan of the Soviets. If you look at Soviet records, I think back then, you know, it was read as a as the Soviets' first step into world domination and all that rhetoric mm -hmm. bullshit was passed around. It was none of that. The Soviets had a client state. They couldn't afford to be you know, uh, they couldn't afford to, have, you know, lose face. They had to support him and they came in. And that is pretty much it. So that's that's very broadly the, you know, contours of the Soviet invasion. I've just covered about, I don't know, a four-hour uh, lecture on, on in, into four minutes, uh, broadly. Uh, once that happened, uh, two, two things happened immediately. 
the mujahideen the, the seven i mean maybe you could now you know throw some light on the you know the seven uh, maybe give some details and then we can get into specifics of the big names because there were only three or four that big names that, that operated so do you want to take this one so see uh, we could go into those big names of the peshawar seven but it, it would be a digression in my opinion because uh, all right forget it let me just read their names out sibgatullah mujahidi then you had burhanuddin rabbani who was uh, nominally masood's boss but uh, you know we all know where the power lay you had gulbuddin hekmatyar you had mohammad nabi mohammadi and a few others who are pretty much uh, not really remembered all that much you had uh, haq also uh, the line of kabul right yeah and you had yunus uh, who was another uh, hezbe islami now i really don't know why they couldn't come up with different names i mean it's not like <laughs> people are short of names but yeah they both ran hezbe islami so when you read history books it's fairly confusing sometimes to see which bloody hezbe islami group they're talking about right so there were two factions uh, or rather there were two hezbe islamis one was gulbuddin and one was khalis uh, mohammad yunus khalis uh, obviously led the khalis faction of the hezbe islami right and again I, this uh, guy was uh, he, he, uh, like uh, gulbuddin this guy was also a gilzai pashtun uh, and uh, obviously uh, the afghan traditionalist uh, durrani pashtuns uh, weren't very fond of these guys spot on i think that's again the overview guys so like remember this is just the overview you might want to do some more reading on this to get some more uh, you know detailed insights so broadly speaking you had the in in terms of the actual resistance you had the rabani and uh, masood uh, faction uh, that operated in the panjshir valley and just outside of kabul then you had haq who operated who was pretty much an urban you know gorilla fighter uh, he operated in and around the kabul areas itself Uh, then you had Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was based in the south, till the Taliban rose and sort of, uh, you know, took over from Hekmatyar. And the reason why the Taliban was promoted is something we'll come into in a bit. Yes. Uh, in terms of the terrain, uh, very wide terrain, very diverse terrain. There's this conception that uh, Afghanistan is all mountains. It's not. Uh, it's it's like saying, you know, say Vietnam's all all forest. No, it's not. you have mount you have the highlands you have the central plains you have the coast you have the forest as well as the forest so afghanistan also likewise had a lot of plains uh, then you you had the southern uh, areas i mean relatively of course all this is relative then you had reasonably built up urban areas uh, nothing like stalingrad for for certain but these were urban areas uh, and then you had the panjshir uh, valley now the panjshir valley is very crucial to the soviets very very crucial because the vital salang pass or salang salang pass and the mm-hmm. salang highway that sort of was the lifeline uh, you know for the uh, soviet armies ran through the panjshir valley so that no, was a slight correction slight correction it didn't ra- run through it it was like 30 kilometers from the panjshir valley and uh, masood's men would just hop over the mountains separating the salang highway from the panjshir valley and do whatever they wanted over there in fact right. i'm uh, sorry yeah yeah so the soviet sent uh, this uh, uh, black limousine for uh, the then uh, leader of afghanistan to use and these guys intercepted it they stripped it to its parts they carried the parts over the mountains and they reassembled it inside the panjshir valley for masood to use for his personal purposes that's so, brilliant <laughs> yeah they actually did that the, these guys were nuts uh, so so sorry like so so it ran very close by 
but it suffices to say that the Salang Highway was a vital lifeblood for the Soviet occupation forces. Uh, their airlift cap you know, capacity was good, but it was nothing on par with what even the, you know, the Americans could muster, for example, in 2001. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so that was a very vital piece of territory that the Soviets wanted, which is why the Soviets wanted the Panjashir so badly. You know, they wanted it cleansed of, of, of rebels and insurgents uh, just so that they could have, you know, their, their supply chains went unmolested. I think that's the key lesson that, uh, you know, from why the Soviets wanted uh, the Panjashir Valley so badly that they mm -hmm. launched, I think, 10 or 12 various operations uh, in right. fact, from 81, uh, 80, 80, sorry. Yeah, 80 I have the dates over here. From right. August 80, that's Operation Panshir. Uh, November 80, that's Operation Panshir 2. One. Dec December 80, that's 3. Uh, September 81, that's 4. Uh, May 82, 5. Uh, August 82, 6. You have uh, April 84, that's 7. Uh, September 84, that's 8, and uh, you have uh, June 85, that's Operation Panshir 9. Uh, in between, Masood was up against three different Secretary Generals of the USSR. The last one being Mikhail Gorbachev. So That is uh, amazing this, staying power. Yeah, yeah, absolute staying power. And uh, to think that he was starved of weapons and resources by the ISI, so his people would intercept Soviet uh, supply convoys yes. on the Salang Highway, they would take weapons from there. And that's how he fought them. So he fought the Soviets basically with their own weapons. Brilliant. I mean, that's, that's and, and, and the DRA. Let's not forget yes. the DRA. Yes. <laughs> because this, the, the Masood, not just the Mas, no, Masood faction, but even the Hekmatyar faction and, and, and the Hux, basically they, they had this, uh, I don't know what to call it. They had this uh, brilliant idea wherein they would essentially try and minimize or sometimes even avoid outright combat uh, with Soviet forces. So let's say there was a search and destroy operation, right? I'm sorry, I'm just using an American term here because Russian terms are, are a mouthful. Uh, so assume there was a search and you know, you know, destroy operation. What the Soviets would pr pretty much do is deploy a battalion-sized Soviet unit with ancillary DRA units, search an entire district or area, uh, find caches, destroy them, and then leave you know, DRA garrisons to sort of, you know, govern that territory and they would go back to their base. And the DRA didn't like this because the moment the Soviets left, the <laughs> DRA would, would get routed. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not even joking. I mean, this happened, like, it happened so many times that, you know, where the DRA uh, garrisons would get routed, they would simply abandon or they would, they would put up a book, you know, a stiff fight, but they would lose. And then again, like you said, their weapons would become, you know, the Mujahideen. It's like your, all your bases are mine. Uh, <laughs> unless, of course, the, the Mujahideen were prepared for a Soviet offensive, in which case they definitely, you know, fought the Soviets pretty much head on. I mean, I, I'm not so saying no. Th there's, another, uh, there's another aspect to the DRA over there. Uh, the reason Masood could survive uh, nine Operation Panshirs was because the Soviets would always, or at least in the initial four or five, they would employ the DRA as, uh, you know, uh, they also had this idea which the Americans shared later on that, you know, in order to legitimize our presence over here, we need the Afghans to lead the fighting against the Mujahideen. So the DRA would be involved in each and every operation Panshir and uh, Masood had thoroughly penetrated the officer core of the DRA, especially the Tajiks in there. So he would get advanced intelligence about uh, Soviet plans for invading Panshir uh, uh, weeks or months in advance. 
and uh, the soviets would uh, nicely drive up into panchir valley with the dra in advance and they would go to these towns and villages and they'd find them empty no civilians no livestock nothing because masood knew they were coming he knew the date the time and he had evacuated everyone from there so all all the civilians over there and masood's fighters they would be in these side valleys or up halfway up the mountain and the soviets would be in the valley and they think oh we've conquered panchir exactly uh, and that's i think what happened with the taliban offensive now though but again like i said we we are too early in in the game and there are a lot of you know logistical challenges that the previous northern alliance didn't face so we still are you know too early in the game uh, but but the tone of the various operations now that is what i find fascinating as a sort of an amateur uh, you know military reader uh but one thing though i must make clear is i guess i might come across as a masood fanboy unfortunately i am as really i mean he i mean his forces were so disciplined that i think there's been barely any incidents of say you know violence against civilians there was one in which again masood was cleared it came during the civil war uh, you know it was not it was you know it was not troops directly under his control he ran a very disciplined ship as far as you know things like uh, you know violations of uh, civilian uh, life was concerned or robbery or theft uh, brigandry uh, while for example hekmatiyah troops killed volunteer workers they killed aid workers i mean they were just you know brutal jihadists so i am a masood fanboy and i, I know I, that comes across like that but I, i wanted to make that clear right at the front uh, and he's a, he was a genius and i and i and i test i agree with what shawn accept uh on back to the topic though if you look at uh, very broadly the operation panjashirs uh 1 to 4 1 to 3 were a bit of a learning experience for both sides uh 1 to 3 the soviets used uh, very unadvisedly they used very textbook uh, you know combined you know arms without the air bit so they used mechanized forces uh, they would have uh, you know me- me- mechanized battalions following up and uh, this didn't work very well because of course as you can imagine a huge force advancing up the road is a is a bit of an intelligence gap i mean you can figure out uh, you know when the attack is coming or where the attack is going and masood had a lot of counter penetration into dra sources so he knew pretty much almost every time like you said he even evacuated the civilians he knew when an attack was coming way before in most of the cases but he did fail uh, in for example panjashir 5 and we'll come to that mm-hmm. uh, 1 to 4 1 to 3 was bog standard uh, you know infantry uh, engagements for the most part with some artil- you know uh, air prepping there's some artillery prepping and the f- and what the mujahideen did as a counter was they would vanish into the subsidiary peaks so basically panjashir is a, a picture it like you know the the traditional drawing of a mountain that we all used to do as kids you know like just a row of mountains so what these guys would do is they would they figure out the inish, the, uh, the mujahideen that is masood and his you know intelligence would figure out the axis of attack and they would basically evacuate all the key you know points in the axis of attack occupy subsidiary fortified points where they would not show up and this time mind you they had only 0.303s and maybe the few odd stolen ak47 so they had nothing to fight the uh, soviet and the dra with mm-hmm. uh, but what they did was and i this i'd liken it to the you know say the bulgarians uh, with the byzantine empire uh, wherein they would let the like the bulgarians would let the byzantine in into mountain passes and then they would strike when they were retreating because that's psychologically an, you know a, a better time to you know attack so they so similarly what masood's forces did was they would let the soviet forces in the soviets would conduct whatever operations declare victory 
uh, and just when they were retreating, you know, they would get they would get struck. Sometimes, I think in Operation Panjshir Three, for example, what what Masood did was he changed his plan a bit and he attacked at the force. He attacked at the entrance of the you know of the convoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a bit of a bold tactic. Uh, but then one thing was common uh, to Panjshir One to you know Nine or whatever is that after an initial attack, uh, you know, the, he would order his forces to be dispersed and they would sort of go to the mattress. You know, they would wait the assault out uh, and then do a counter assault. So this was one to three, one to four. Yeah, one to four. Okay. Five was a bit of a mixed bag because that's when this was, I think you have the dates, but five was when the uh, first air assault started to go in. Uh, I think there was a huge amount of, you know, air prepping. There were almost 26, uh, if I'm not mistaken, ground attack aircrafts that were deployed. But the biggest change in Soviet tactics was they decided not to use the traditional routes of access. They mm-hmm. deployed, you know, heliborne troops into peaks, which were typically occupied by Masood and his men. Okay. Uh, Masood had no answer to this. Uh, in fact, this in this particular one, uh, they fought a series of, uh, you know, decentralized engagements. They did inflict huge losses. I mean, Masood, I think, claimed 3,000 men, if I'm not mistaken. But all these claims are, have always to be taken with a pinch of salt. Because I think right. the Soviets claimed some 50 dead. So, I mean, 3,000 versus 50, there is no match. So, uh, but uh, basically, yeah. Let's, let's, let's pause over here and come to present day uh, Panchir Valley. Because uh, there is similarity in terms of how uh, the Taliban, and they're calling it a Taliban offensive, but uh, let's be honest, it's not a Taliban offensive, and we'll get to that in a minute. So the Taliban started with a frontal assault. So that would have been uh, remarkably similar to Operation Panjshir 1, 2, and 3. And they failed. Uh, they suffered horrendous casualties initially. Uh, the resistance, that's uh, Ahmad Masood and Amrullah Saleh's men, these guys uh, slaughtered them. Uh, obviously, this is all based on an isolated report here and there uh, because uh, you don't really have reliable information coming out from Afghanistan right now. But we do know for a fact that the Taliban suffered significant casualties in the initial days of the assault. Uh, then you had reports of helicopters. And uh, there was a very specific report which stated that the Pakistanis were using 26 military helicopters uh, to launch assaults and take men uh, up the peaks. Include And when we say to take men, these were not Taliban, these were uh, SSG, Special Services Group of the Pakistan Army, they're special forces. Uh, that, that that seems remarkably similar to what the the Russians did in Operation Panjshir 5, which was in 1982. So go Correct. ahead. But, but you are, I mean, you are more in tune with the latest happening, Shonak, but the point is, does the current regime even have a fraction of the resources the Soviets and the DRA could match? Do, do, do they even match up to the DRA in terms of their T&OE? I mean, do they even no. have that kind of equipment base? No. So uh, they might have equipment lying around because the Americans were extremely gracious when they were leaving and, uh, you know, forgot to carry their equipment with them. Plus, they had equipment from the surrendering uh, units of the Afghan National Army. So equipment is there. But uh, how many people do they actually have? How many trained fighters do the Taliban actually have? Some estimates put it at less than 40,000. No, that hold is... on, on. I'm going to stop you right there because I'm still not yeah. convinced. Equipment, mm. okay. I mean, I, I saw pictures of Humvees and Toyota mm. tacticals and all that. That's yeah. not going to work in terrain like the Panjshir. 
Absolutely. I mean, do they have assault, uh, you know, do they have assault choppers? Do they have choppers for airborne evacuation of casualties? Do they have RTs? Do they have, uh, do they have RT? Do they have, I mean, I'm not trying to say that they need to have all that, but all this is what was deployed in five and six. Six was, we'll see, was the one that I think Masood actually lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do they even have this kind of scale of equipment? Because otherwise, how so are they going they, to cover? They don't, but the Pakistan army does. And uh, more than one uh, report has come in uh, from, and these are from various sources. This is not, I'm not relying only on Indian sources. Okay. There are uh, people, there are, there are French uh, reporters, there are Canadian politicians, people all across the globe who have connects within Afghanistan, who have credible information that the Pakistan army has basically uh, assaulted Panjshir for the Taliban after the initial Taliban assault failed. And this was around the time when Lieutenant General Faiz Hamid, uh, the Director General of the ISI, was uh, seen in Kabul. He he made an unscheduled, unannounced visit there. He was spotted at the hotel and there were photos all over the place. There was even a small snippet of video. And apparently that got him into a lot of trouble with uh, General Bajwa, the Chief of Army Staff of uh, the Pakistan Army, because uh, this this visit was not authorized, apparently. And uh, this might have contributed to Faiz Hamid not becoming a core commander in the most recent uh, promotions of the Pakistan Army. Right. Interesting. Because the reason I keep stressing on that is because there is an equipment imbalance. Now, the current uh, NA have their own huge logistical issues because of, you know, let's say lack of uh, access to an international border, like I said. But at the same yeah. time, the Taliban, as far as I know, very, mm-hmm. very limited information i have uh, so it's, it's not it's just a very educated guess they don't even have a fraction of the resources the soviets and the dra could meant muster so i think that's the trade off right i mean the northern alliance part 2 is not the same as northern alliance part 1 they have their own challenges but, but the taliban are not the soviet plus dra combined which was quite formidable mind you i mean like i said they they they, they did extract you know they i mean come on 1 million were killed in, in out of a population of 13 million that's a devastating loss. It's just that it's a testimony to the Soviet, uh, sorry, the Afghanistan, Afghan people's fighting spirits, for lack of a better word, that helped them to sustain, but... Oh, no. It, it was uh, American and Saudi money that helped them to sustain. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. That, until yeah, until right. Operation Cyclone launched and uh, the CIA went all in, uh, the Mujahideen were actually contemplating surrender. These guys were on the ropes. Uh, the Soviets had them, you know, completely figured out. And uh, they were going to ruin their happiness. Uh, even after Operation Cyclone began and the Mujahideen pushed back, the Soviets amended their tactics and they pushed back again. And these guys were uh, almost routed, the Mujahideen, uh, because the Soviets used gunships. And uh, the Mujahideen were terrified of Soviet gunships. So uh, that's when the Americans introduced the Stingers uh, to you know, blunt the Soviet offensive in a way. Uh, make their gunships vulnerable. Until that happened again, the Mujahideen were almost defeated. So had it not been for uh, the CIA's meddlesome ways uh, and their uh, wet dream of, you know, giving the Soviet Union their own Vietnam, Afghanistan might have been very different today. True, but but still to eat a million killed and two million wounded and I don't know, whatever number, uh, you know, who are in exile in Pakistan or Iran or and still continue fighting, I think, to me, definitely indicates a huge human element. 
uh, aside from, of course, the material element, which is very, very important. But a very interesting point you raised about change in tactics, because five was when the first test, you know, you know, tactics were tested, I would say, okay. uh, wherein, you know, there was a fair bit of, you know, heliborn insertions, uh, limited amount of gunship uh, usage. Uh, but like I said, what they did was they, the Soviets, they essentially changed their tactics. And instead of, you know, using the same approach routes, which sort of, you know, gave Masood and his men a huge head start, these mm -hmm. heliborn, you know, insertions are, you know, targeted known insurgent, say sanctuary spots i wouldn't say hiding spots sanctuary spots mm. this masood was not prepared for so like i said he had to but he he reacted on the fly he reacted on the fly uh, he decentralized his command uh, you know and we are all this is happening in a span of a week or 10 days right so he okay. decentralized his command he gave his you know men the order to retreat to the lowlands mm -hmm. you know they usually fight in the highlands but the highlands were now occupied by you know battle hardened you know say spetsnaz and other yeah. special groups so he basically moved to the lowlands and then, mm -hmm. you know, took on DRA units, uh, gave them a bloody nose, but then he also could not sustain. And then basically there was a tactical stalemate and both sides had to retreat. But six was the turning point in the Panjashiri war. Like you said, I think uh, the Soviets almost pulled it off. They mm -hmm. broke Masood's army. In fact, you know, Masood, much against uh, the wishes of even Rabani, mm -hmm. actually sued for a peace and he got a peace. And, and, yes. and six was, was very, very interesting. Because they, the Soviets, I guess, finally realized that, you know, bog standard mechanized infantry, you know, tactics might work in, say, in, 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 in opening the Fulda gap in Europe, for example, which is wide plains. You could deploy armor, you could deploy your Katyushka or whatever rocket launcher was called, you know, the rocket launcher was called in, yeah. in, 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 so in Afghanistan. Uh, it didn't work in this terrain, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, they strengthened, they doubled down on heliborn insertions. And they've introduced the Hind, uh, the terrifying gunship that you see in Rambo 4, the Afghanistan version. Right. Uh, and and that was and that terrified the Mujahideen, be mm -hmm. it the Masood faction or the Hekmatyar faction, because it was very heavily armored. Uh, and they didn't have stingers at that point of time. Uh, the counter the Mujahideen launched was they would sight themselves on peaks of yeah. approaches of these choppers uh, and sight the DZHU, you know, uh, machine, heavy machine guns. And RPG. But as you can imagine, both were very, very ineffective, uh, you know, against these beasts. Um, and so six almost succeeded. Uh, in the sense, it, it inflicted a complete, you know, total bloody nose to, the, to, the, to, to Masood and the Northern Alliance. And uh, he basically said, you know what, I, I need a break. Yeah. And he said, OK, I raise my hands. I'm going to sign a deal with the Soviets. I need time to rest, refit and recuperate. And it worked. And the Soviets gave it to him. And that, but that's testimony to his brilliance. Because, I mean, imagine the Americans doing a side deal with one insurgent gorilla in, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's just not going to happen, right? Mm. But, the, sure. but the Soviets were also so war-weary you know, war, you know, and so tired from fighting in this region that the southern region, other sectors had been sort of neglected. So right. they said, you know what, we're going to take this deal. We will sign a peace agreement. We'll focus on other, other sectors using our latest tactics. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that's what happened. So basically, there was a truce for about a year. And uh, the ISI made brilliant use of that truce because they basically used this truce to convince uh, the CIA and uh, the US government 
because uh, the CIA and the US government were not always on the same page as far as Afghanistan was concerned. So the ISI used this to convince the CIA that, look, boss, this guy is not reliable. He's not he's not entirely anti-Soviet. He signed a truce with them. Tomorrow he might ally with them. You don't know. You don't know what he's going to do. So the CIA said, look, uh, uh, then what do you want us to do? And the ISI is like, you know, uh, you have all these congressmen visiting us and telling us, you know, this faction of the Mujahideen is not getting resources or that faction is not getting resources. Get them off our backs. Because uh, when the ISI started favoring Hekmatyar, uh, the other Mujahideen, they, these guys were smart. Okay, They started sending representatives to Washington to lobby members of Congress. And, you know, they would go from office to office and they would they would tell them their soft story and they would say, look, boss, you're sending all these resources to the ISI, but they're not giving any to us. And we are the ones who are actually fighting, not Hekmatya. Okay. Exactly. And, and, and they, I think here the MI6 were smart because <laughs> they figured very early on that Masood was arguably uh, a player, you know, with skin in the game. Uh, yes. And the MI6... For whatever, I mean, they, they didn't they didn't have the lavish uh, war check that the, uh, you know, Langley did, but MI6 definitely supported uh, Masood. And like I said, the irony of irony is later in the civil war, uh, the bulk of the support uh, for Masood came from his hated foe, the Russians. I mean, that's supreme <laughs> irony. Yeah, I, I, not just MI6, by the way, even French intelligence was backing him to the hilt and they tried to lobby the CIA, explain to them, look, what you're doing with Hekmatyar is insane. Please don't do that because there's going to be blowback and that guy is, is nuts. Uh, this guy is actually in Afghanistan fighting. Hekmatyar, for all his bravado, the moment, you know, uh, the Soviets launched, launched an offensive, he would slip across the Durand line into Peshawar. In, in, into that, into that uh, refugee camp, Shamshato, uh, south, southeast of Peshawar. He would sit there quietly, wait for everything to blow over and then he would try and assault again. Masood was in Afghanistan practically 24-7. And he was bearing the brunt of it and he was surviving. But right. the CIA didn't see it that way. And uh, unfortunately, uh, their station chief in Islamabad at that point of time, a guy called Milt Bearden, he had clientitis. Everything that the ISI did was correct, according to him. And, you know, there were people in the Department of State, surprisingly, who were very skeptical about Pakistani intentions and they wanted the CIA to take a more active role, actually audit where what was going. But uh, this guy fought back. So, no, but but one small perspective there. Mm -hmm. Hezbe Islami fighters were known to be fanatical. The Soviets respected them. I mean, the leadership might have been utter crap. Mm -hmm. uh, but these guys, they lacked the tactical finesse of, uh, say, the Northern Alliance. Yeah. Uh, but they definitely absorbed a lot of the tactics, uh, you know, uh, from various sources. They hit, they used, I mean, for their terrain, for example, they used hit and run. Uh, mm -hmm. Something Masood and his men did not do often because they were fighting defensive battles. If right. you look at the southern plains, the, the southern theater, uh, mm -hmm. this tempo and style of operations was very different. So they had the numbers also. So they okay. even tried open siege, you know, open set piece battles and they lost almost all of it. That's a different issue and they got routed. But the point I'm trying to make is, uh, yes, I think Hekmatyar was a, was, a, was, a, was a piece of trash human being. Uh, his men Still were fundamentally... He still he, is. Yeah, he still is. He's still alive. He's, still alive. he's, survived. I mean, he's not been that. assassinated. He's not. He's not been killed in a bomb explosion. He survived <laughs> the war. He survived three wars. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that man must have nine lives. Uh, yeah. But the fact I'm trying to make is the because I mean right now we're focusing on the Northern Alliance. Maybe we could, uh, you know, of course we don't have the time for that today. But the Southern Theater, the tactics were entirely different, uh, okay. uh, Shonak. Because it, it, you know here it was more airborne assaults and. 
uh, you know, running battles and defense, decentralized defense. So there it was more set pieces because they had the numbers. You know, a lot of the uh, Pakistani volunteers were, you know, funneled into the Hezbollah-Islami Hekmatia right. faction. Uh, so the tone and tenor itself is very different. It's like multiple battles. You know, Huck fought a very different you know battle in in Kabul outside Kabul, for example. So so that was uh, more urban guerrilla and all that, of that. that. So that guy that guy had to be absolutely nuts to engage the Soviet Union in urban guerrilla warfare right outside Kabul. I mean, hats off to the guy. And he survived. Exactly my point. So all of them. I mean, each of the theaters were very different. So maybe we can do. A piece, uh, you know, on on the other theater, on both the other theaters, we can sort of combine it into one. Uh, but coming back to Panjshir Six, uh, I think post the truce about a year, uh, and that's the numbers are telling, because when Panjshir Five went in, uh, I think in mid eighty three, uh, the Soviets had about sixty sixty five hind choppers, right, the assault choppers. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Jan eighty four, when Panjshir Six started, just was about to be initiated. They were up to around 350 to 400. They'd basically gone up five to six times or four to five times, you know, just the hind choppers. Same with the, you know, frog foot bombers. Basically, the Soviets realized in 83, look, old tactics don't work. They might have worked against Hitler. They might, they might they, I mean, of course, it's not just Hitler, because if you look at Soviet doctrinal war planning for an invasion of Germany, for example, West Germany, it mm-hmm. was all armor driven. The Soviets yeah. had armor focused for decades, I mean, even before, I mean, and now I know I'm digressing a bit, uh, but again, that's one of my most favorite subjects, which is the evolution of armor, you know, doctrine. Uh, even before World War II, they had sort of favored the armor doctrine, maybe because they had the numbers, maybe they had the industry, I don't know. I mean, that's a different issue, but here they realized that's not going to work. So they borrowed heavily from, so you know, U.S. tactics, uh, you know, in, in, in Vietnam. Because yeah. the U.S., they did pretty much the same. They prepped assault. You know, they, they used, they got, you know, ground pounders to, to prep territory. Then they mm-hmm. would send in massive artillery strikes. Then insert specialized troops, you know, U.S. 1st Aircraft Division. Insert them into special, say, into, say the Iron Triangle or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, take some territory, do a search and destroy. Maybe take out a couple of political targets, whatever it is. And then get back while they leave the, you know, the uh, Arvin Marvins, A-R-V-N, to sort of, you know, Police the ground, right. and exactly what the Soviets started doing from Panjshir Six onwards. Panjshir Six was a was 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 on a scale that you know even Masood did not sort of imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deployed the uh, twenty five Frogfoot for the first time in action, uh, Su twenty five, uh, in a ground pounding role, and uh, it worked because for the first time, I guess since Panjshir One, Masood decided he's not going to fight, and that yeah. is when the evacuation happened. Uh, you know, but he had intelligence. I mean, and we're going to come to that. Uh, if you look at intelligence, the Soviet did have reliable human. Uh, but if you look at, uh, you know, if you read, you know, expert action reports, uh, some from, say, the bear went over the mountain or the other side of the mountain, both written by you know, Colonel Lester Grau. Uh, you see that they relied too much on one or two sources. So, for okay. example, one source might tell them, Hey, this uh, Mujahideen commander is going. He lives in this village. And now that might be accurate, but they lack the final last mile intelligence network. You know that helped them say put a Hellfire drone in in their heart. I mean the equivalent. Got they it, couldn't do got it. So yeah. spent that Masood knew when Panjshir Six was going in. He sort of expected the scale. Unlike Fai, he was not caught flat-footed, and that is when he ordered the full evacuation. And they still fought. I mean they still fought. You know set piece battles. And this time he chose IEDs. Okay, not IEDs. Sorry, mines. What is the okay. difference between mines and IEDs, by the way? I mean, they're the same, right? 
not really. Uh, mine is actually uh, so. Uh, it's not improvised. A mine is not improvised. It's manufactured okay. to do exactly that. But an ID, it's it's not manufactured to do what it's. Uh, I mean, an ID can be anything. It can be basically uh, a few kilograms of explosives uh, with ball bearings stuck onto it, right? Ah, but, but the function uh, is the same, right? You mine a road or no, whatever. not really. Uh, so IDs. You you'll use it to take out armor, yes. Uh, so in that sense, it is like a mine. But uh, you so uh, most of the IEDs are artillery shells rigged to blow. They don't. Okay. It, it's not so much uh, landmines or anti-tank. Anti-tank mines are different, of course. Uh, they work on a different principle, but uh, land uh, anti-personnel landmines are too small to be used as IEDs. Uh, and uh, anti-tank ones have a very specific role. So if you want to penetrate armor, yes, you might use an anti-tank uh, mine in mine. an IED. Yeah. But if, if you just want to cause a lot of death and destruction on a non-armor target, then you won't use a mine at all. You'll, you'll construct an IED. Okay. Interesting. But coming back to this uh, engagement, what he did was uh, he mined the key choke points where he knew the limited and and i stress on the word limited uh, you know you know armored elements of the soviet assault and the dra units would come in because they had limited i would say they bought it down almost by a quarter and it was whereas the you know airborne heliborne insertion numbers had gone up substantially and uh, he he basically fought tactical battles in key choke points attacked them you know sort of like shivaji with the mughals and then melted away before uh, you know they could before they sustain too many heavy casualties. But even that almost worked because these were tactics on a scale. I mean, we're talking about 200, you know, uh, heavy bombers bombing a small piece of territory uh, yeah. before a massive invasion. I mean, that's not something that, uh, you know, uh, even a conventional army can defend against, con you know, easily. So it almost worked. It almost worked. So, okay, so then, anyways, so then moving on, uh, broadly, what happened is, again, uh, this is when the Stinger missile sort of comes into the picture, because mm -hmm. these tactics were, like I said, during the break, uh, you know, we were on a break. During a break, they were replicating these strategies across all theatres, especially the southern theatres, and uh, the terrain didn't favour the Mujahideen in the southern sectors. So, mm -hmm. they, the, the Mujahideen were getting a hammering, and that is when the... U.S. decided, listen, let's, you know, without this, uh, you know, we're going to get, uh, we're going to get white. So let's start uh, sort of deploying stingers. Right. And that is when the stinger started flowing in via Karachi. Mm -hmm. So, so just, just to understand, though, I mean, the stinger allocation, Chanak, did that also flow through ISI, I guess? Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, look. Uh, so there was money and there was material, right? Uh, as far as money was concerned, uh, the CIA and the GID, they would basically fly the money in boxes, in crates. Uh, I'll, I'll take the, the example of uh, the GID. Uh, Turkey's uh, Man Friday, uh, a guy called uh, Wadib. This guy flew into Karachi with wooden crates. And he was alone. And uh, customs wanted to inspect the crates. And he's like, no way, you can't look into them. And they were like, why not? He's like, oh. uh, no, no, you can't look into them. No, I've got uh, sensitive equipment in there. And customs is like, all right, we won't open it. We'll just pass it through the X-ray machine. 
and this guy freaks out again because you're going to see banknotes on the x-ray machine he was carrying about a million dollars in cash wow and mm. uh, he was worried for his life at that point of time so uh, this guy says you can't do that either because i've got photo films inside there and if you push, put it through the x-ray machine uh, they're going to get destroyed and then you'll have to answer to my boss who is the head of gid he's the cousin of the king and blah 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 finally managed to convince these guys probably pay, paid them a bribe as well and uh, got on to the aircraft to islamabad this guy flies to islamabad with his boxes full of money and uh, he's met at the airport by the director general of the isi and uh, he hands over custody of those boxes to the dg isi and that's it this was money what they followed money is transferred uh, this is what the gid did this is also what the cia did they transferred banknotes which were crisp american dollars or they also transferred bars of gold and just handed it over and their their role ended at islamabad they didn't even go to peshawar that's fascinating i mean and i see a pattern here because this bars of gold chests of cash uh, you know that seems to be the standard cia operation because they've done that with somali warlords they've done it with uh, drug lords but anyway let's not get in let's not get sidetracked into the you know the uh, cia naughty textbook uh but but let's just uh, look at some so, numbers yeah just just w- one thing yeah. uh the cia came uh so during the afghan war the cia actually came into contact with an organization that was naughtier than them uh as you mentioned the mujahideen started with 303 rifles right lee enfield yeah and obviously they needed rifles which the cia purchased from all over the world through front organizations including from india uh they they purchased whatever 303 rifles they could they also needed ammunition 303 ammunition mm. and uh, they were looking around and uh, one fine day the pakistani say look boss we found a supplier for uh, 5 million rounds of 303s and we needed to pay for it and i think it was like 50 cents or one oh yeah 50 cents a bullet and the ci is extremely happy they sign a check and they're like oh yeah yeah go ahead we'll we'll give you the cash yeah. so actually sign a check so uh here here's the thing okay in ojri which is uh their uh, pakistan pakistan army's weapons store near rawalpindi they had 5 million 303 uh, bullets ah. lying around and the pakistan army no longer used lee enfield rifles they Just no longer used the 303 so so they put all those bullets onto crates they sent the crates down to karachi they put those crates on a boat on a ship rather uh, the ship sailed out to sea for a day came back docked again the crates were unloaded and they were taken back to rawalpindi apparently you know oh, oh, our supplier has sent the uh, bullets but yeah. someone in rawalpindi had a brain or half a brain he actually opened the crates and looked at the bullets and this guy was uh, a pakistani obviously pakistan army guy and he noticed that each of those bullets had pof stamped on them pakistan ordnance factory wow wow and they freaked out because at that point of time they were uh they were engaged in a balancing act because they didn't want to piss the soviets off enough to invade pakistan plausible pakistan. deniability yes so what they did was they found a bunch of soldiers they gave them files and they made them file the pof of each and every bullet 5 million bullets they had to file god but they got money from the isi and they got from, paid, from yeah. the cia yeah they paid but, they but got paid. fun fun fact not many people know about because it was buried i guess uh but in 84 85 there was a huge bomb explosion in a dra uh, you know uh barrack and the soviets threatened retaliation to the pakistanis and in 85 there was actually 
Spetsnaz raid into a Pakistani frontier outpost. So I think that is possibly the only time the Soviets actually technically invaded Pakistan. And apparently they inflicted quite a few casualties. So Yeah, so the standard, standard operating procedure for uh, Pakistan army soldiers along the frontier when they came across Soviets, you know, the Soviets came really close, was to abandon posts and run. Of course they would. <laughs> it's the Soviets. Yeah. No, so, so, but but no, what I'm trying to say here is there was, uh, okay, a surgical strike. I mean, that's the latest buzzword, <laughs> right? There right, was actually right. a Spetsnaz surgical strike into Pakistani territory that was declassified later on. I mean, the no. US Congress, I think, published some sort of a report and there's some after action uh, study also on that. So maybe Damn. some of They should have done, time. they should have done it more often. The Soviets. Uh, no, because they, the moment they did that, then, you know, the US would formally escalate because... Don't forget, the uh, Pakistanis were on the Seattle, uh, Southeast so, Asia Treaty Organization. So, uh, to, to counter the, uh, so to kind of push back against the ISI, what the KGB did was it cultivated tremendous uh, human sources within Pakistan, uh, basically um, in Peshawar, in Quetta and in Karachi. And what they did was they gave these guys explosives, they taught them how to use them, and they started setting off bombs in Karachi, in Peshawar, in Islamabad, Rawalpindi, and Quetta. Uh, that got the message to the Pakistanis, and they kind of pulled the ISI back, back a bit. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, remember, the Mujahideen were fighting the Soviets, but they, they were, their, their spines were stiffened by an element of the SSG. Oh, that was always without a case, uh, without a doubt, right? I mean, yeah. they were sheep-tipped into leading assaults on the Northern Alliance during the Taliban's rise because yeah. the first Taliban assault on Herat failed. And the second one was basically the Pakistan front with the side of the uh, Taliban. So so uh, people think that the Taliban are some, you know, unstop were some unstoppable uh, military juggernaut. That was not oh, the case not. because the first independent operation they ran, they got crushed. And then the Pakistan, like you said, had to stiffen their backbone. They had to sheep tip officers. And, and, and an interesting side note here is when this was happening, like literally when this was happening, uh, I think Benazir Bhutto was the, was the PM then. And she was in the White House promising to Bill Clinton that, you know what, Pakistan has nothing to do with the Taliban. I mean, that's the kind of dual-faced, Janus-faced uh, uh, you know, uh, reputation that Pakistan has. Uh, but anyway, to sort of bring it back to, to the topic, the numbers are telling Shanak, because if you look at 83, and I quote from memory, uh, so might be plus or minus here, uh, the Soviets lost about 11 aircraft, right? Just one okay. of it was a fighter aircraft. Mm -hmm. By 86, they were losing about 40 aircraft a year, uh, of which almost wow. 12 to 14 were fighter bombers and fighters. These were far more expensive. And now I'm going to loop back to the comment I made at the start of the podcast. The Soviet economy was an empty shell. You know, they yes. just could not afford these kind of material losses. Mm -hmm. And that essentially is what caused them to sort of announce a pullback. Not, I mean, the manpower was not a challenge. Uh, you know, they deployed about 150,000, you know, fighting troops on average. Uh, right. They lost a total of what, around 60,000, 70,000. Uh, the DRA losses weren't, uh, didn't matter to the Soviets, to be very honest. Mm -hmm. They could have sustained, but they did not have the money to keep fighting. So and here's the thing. Here's the yeah. thing. The Soviets withdraw. They leave Najibullah in charge, and everyone expects him to his government to collapse in a matter of weeks. Uh, yes. The ISI was jubilant. 
the CIA was jubilant. They were like, you know, look, first, this guy is going to fall in a matter of weeks, if not earlier. And we are going to just walk into Kabul and take over. And that didn't happen. Now, when that didn't happen for weeks on end, uh, the ISI got antsy because Hamid Gul was DGISI at that point of time. And he had promised his prime minister uh, and and the Americans as well that uh, Hekmatyar was poised to take Kabul. Exactly. So then, then he he kind of uh, convinced Hekmatyar and a few others of the Peshawar 7 to launch a frontal assault on Jalalabad. And they got slaughtered over there, slaughtered badly. I think uh, Bhutto, Benazir Bhutto was the prime minister at that point of time and uh, she freaked out at the casualties that they had suffered. But uh, Najibullah's government head, he survived uh, for a number of years after the Soviets withdrew. And that was pretty amazing. And I think that we look back to the hero of the story, if I may use that, because a lot of the resistance was conducted by, uh, you know, by uh, Masood and Huck. Uh, they sort of let the the resistance movement sort of, I mean, like I said, Rabani was still the figurehead. Uh, yes. And uh, the turning point for Hekmatyar, though, since now we're accelerating the storyline, uh, the turning point uh, was when the pressure, ISI pressure to sort of bring down the government didn't work. He took to indiscriminately shelling the, uh, the so, city of Kabul. So th- there's a fun story right before that. Okay, uh, let me get to that. Uh, uh, Najibullah's government is about to fall. We, we, we've gone about four years into the future from the Soviet uh, withdrawal, right? Uh, Najibullah is about to fall. Everyone knows that. And Hekmatyar is triumphant. He's going to walk into Kabul. He's going to take it over and he's going to become prime minister of Afghanistan. He's convinced about that. He takes his forces, all of his forces, and he's at Charasya. Uh, it, it's, it's a small district. Uh, it's a valley which is about 20 kilometers southeast of Kabul, just 20 kilometers, not even 20 kilometers, 10 kilometers. Okay, He's at the doorstep and he tells his troops to wash their cars because he wants to go in shiny, yeah, shiny parade, and, parade. and uh, there was an Arab uh, journalist embedded with him at that point of time. And that guy recalls that Hekmatyar went to bed and as was his habit, he switched off his radios. And he went to bed. He wakes up in the morning. He performs his ablutions or whatever. I don't know if he bathed or not, but whatever. Uh, And he gets ready to proceed to Kabul for the triumphant homecoming. And he switches on his radio and he he receives terrible news. Because overnight, what had happened was uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, the Uzbek uh, commander. (laughs) Yeah, he was Najibullah's uh, minister of defense, I think. No, he wasn't MOD, but he was uh, the major warlord supporting Najibullah. He switched sides and joined Masood. And what they did overnight was they flew Dostum's Uzbek uh, militia uh, using aircraft from Mazar-e-Sharif to Kabul airport. They secured Kabul airport, flew these guys in, and they basically took Kabul over overnight. And the next day, uh, Masood rides into Kabul on a tank uh, bedecked with flowers while uh, Hekmatyar is, you know, <laughs> cursing, every, <laughs> cursing everyone uh, just 10 kilometers away. And then he tries to enter Kabul. Masood's forces and Dostum's forces just, you know, push him back. Neighborhood by neighborhood, they push him back and throw him out of Kabul, which is when he starts indiscriminately shelling Kabul. Shelling Afghanistan. Uh, Kabul, sorry. Uh, from, yeah. from hatred, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Frustration. I mean, <laughs> imagine no, so, 10 kilometers away and <laughs> sleeping because, you know, you're king of Afghanistan now and waking up the next morning to find the capital is gone. 
and but i think that's something weird because uh, even during the uh, you know the soviet occupation mm-hmm. the tal i mean the mujahideen maybe didn't get in a free sets but radio sets were not widely used i mean i find that still challenging because i mean if the us could supply them with stingers i'm guessing a a, a box of 100000 uh, radio sets shouldn't have been the challenge but radio sets were always a challenge they did i mean uh, they 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 supplied uh, encrypted radio sets so that the soviets couldn't listen in and uh, no, they would i'm saying the start. numbers were less because if you look if okay. you read action you know tactical action you know after action reviews mm-hmm. lack of a radio set consistently played uh, plays a common theme if you read okay. for example there's a there's a set of action you know after action reviews called the other side of the mountain which is basically the mujahideen side of the story right it's about 400 to oh, 200 uh, action sequences in this is specific set battles or you know engagements yeah. a lack of a radio is a yeah. running team i mean i'm sure the, a lot of the units did have radios but this this masood sorry this hekmatyar switching off his radio uh, sort of resonated with me it's, i don't know maybe it's something to do with the faith i'm i'm i mean i, I don't want to comment on things that are not i'm not aware of but anyway so so yeah that's uh, that's pretty much the curtain to uh, to the soviet occupation to very you know the high level tactics and counter tactics but i mean even here there are like i said the southern sector and kabul has entirely different tactics and counter tactics that sort of evolved mm-hmm. uh, then of course you have the you know the rise of the taliban i guess i think we plan doing all of this in one hour which i think yeah. is <laughs> that's impossible that's impossible So yes. yeah, I think, uh, but it was very. I mean, so okay. Now I'm just you're going to edit this bit, right? So so now actually, do you want to break this up? We can do a next piece next week. Yeah. Uh, so l- let's park it here. Uh, we are right at the cusp where the Taliban emerges out of yeah. Kandar, right? Yeah. So let's park it here, and we'll take it up next week as well. Uh, but then I want to bring in the southern theaters and stuff. So maybe we can do a history of that. Yeah. Anyway, the Taliban come out of the southern sector, right? So we can talk about the because the style is very different, Shonak. The the whole You know, set piece. so set pieces are not, I'm not something I've not spoken about at all because the right. the Masood avoided set pieces, but mm-hmm. Hekmatyar yeah, didn't. So I think there's another 15-20 minutes of material in there that we can discuss. We'll roll it into next week, and uh, after that we'll take on the Taliban. Ha, makes sense. So maybe we can have a 30-minute piece and then introduce the Taliban, and sure. then go on to the you know occupation, and then the civil war, and then the present. Sounds good, yeah. All right, finished. Right, so, so we wrap up then. Let's wrap up. Thank you so much for uh, joining, and this was tremendously enjoyable. And uh, we will take it up again next week. The pleasure was all mine. I think a lot of very uh, both interesting and I would say funny insights. A lot of uh, I know war is a brutal thing, but uh, you still have these funny anecdotes, right? So yeah. lovely, lovely time. Thanks. Thank you for the invite, Sean. That's it for this episode of Espionage and. To read about other real-life cases of espionage, visit espionage.substack.com.